0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders within the UK. I'm Ruth Pike, I help connect tech teams with contract tech talent and today I am your host. Today I'm joined by a great panel to discuss creating high performance teams. Now it's been a pleasure Being on such an extraordinary panel and I'm sure this is going to be a really good discussion having spoken to you all over the last few weeks. So it's a topic that I know a lot of people face when they come to growing their teams. But when we delve deeper into this topic, what I'll do, I'll work away around the room with some introductions and I'd like to know who you are, what you do and also what you're passionate about. So we're going to start with yourself, David. Give us a little insight into yourself, please
1: of well, thank you for having me today, Ruth. Much appreciated. So my name's David Igo. I'm head of engineering at AO.com. I'm passionate about building teams that have an impact on organisations. So this topic is right up my street today.
0: Brilliant. And Mark, I'll pass it over to yourself.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Wheeler. I'm
2: the head of software development for cash processing solutions. Um, I'm passionate about measuring things so we can be proud of our achievements uh, and when we're not as perfect as we need to be we know it and we can
3: improve
0: brilliant go on richard over to hey you hey
3: everyone yeah hey everyone i'm uh, richard thompson so i lead the uh, desktop engineering team at barclays um i guess the, the thing i'm most passionate about is like complex problem solving and how how best to to solve complex problems in a in a simple way so that obviously is driven very much into, you know, how you uh, run your teams and how you structure them as well to deliver them as uh, simply as possible.
0: Amazing. Answer here, give it away.
4: Uh, uh, thanks again, Ruth and everyone else. <clears throat> so yeah, some, I'm been in the industry what over 30 years, started my career at Microsoft as the lead for operating systems and programming languages. It's a very long tenure since then, but I've worked with most of the tech giants. Uh, I tend to do predominantly a lot of uh, freelance and consulting work now, and my passion at the moment is all uh, blockchain, cryptocurrency, all of that sort of area.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much for taking your time to introduce yourselves. So now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic in focus. So we're all here because we have an interest in the topic of creating high performance teams. Now we've got a number of questions to cover, so I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question or your subtopic and the reasons behind it. So each of you will have an opportunity to take your take on the situation. So we are going to start with David, and I know you were going to give some context into this question as well, David. Um, So please tell us what your question is to the group.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So a lot of leadership literature naturally focuses on the leader and puts us as the hero of the story, effectively. Um, But when you think about teams, um, the people, the processes, the interactions, the technologies, It feels feels like a complex system um, that you can't just be repeating with a set of complicated steps. So simply put, my question is, what role does the team play in creating a high performance team?
0: Okay, brilliant. So what we'll do, Mark, we're going to start with yourself. Take it away.
2: That's a great question. I wasn't (laughs) expecting this uh, because you always think, well, a team is part of the high performing team, but So obviously, as you said, uh, David, that team's culture, behavior, their interactions are all vital to the team performing. And there's the agile manifesto like in individuals and interactions over processes and tools. However, I think obviously all those things are really important, but people leave teams. People move around organizations. We're in a really competitive market, job market. if you build your team and rely too much on the individuals just making the team happen and, and working, then eventually it's going to go wrong. So my view is that play to build a strong team, make them confident in what they're doing, make sure they understand, make it so you can onboard new people into the team, but also so you've got succession planning. So. You're robust to when people will eventually everyone's going to leave a team at some point, whether the team disbands or they retire or they leave to another company or another team. Um, So you've got to be prepared for that. Uh, So. The team are really important, but it's also how um, how robust your team is and how you can bring new individuals into a team that 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 I think is the highly performing teams over
3: a long period of time. That's what makes it key, in, in my opinion. Thank
0: you very much. Um, Richard do you want to go next?
3: Yeah sure, um, thanks for the question David. So yeah I mean my view is it's kind of similar to, to Mark's there, I think that you know like you said a good leader in my opinion is someone that shouldn't take the limelight, they're almost invisible to a, to a successful team, they they kind of coach the team and, and really make them kind of the best they can be, but ultimately you know the, the kind of glory comes from the team itself and, and how well they work together I think that you know from my perspective one of the big things is communication within a team and how well they communicate with each other i think if you took those individuals together and you know kind of got them to do their tasks without speaking to each other i think you'd end up with you know a very very poor uh, end result and so i think that you know to create a very effective team the importance of that team very much lies in the communication between them and the trust that they have in the individuals within that team Um, and obviously the better that they work together the, the higher performer that they are. I know there's the, the kind of um, literature on you know forming, storming and norming and all of that kind of focus on how you build a team and how a team kind of grows together and I think that very much you know is in my experience is what happens. Um, obviously in different companies you get higher churn rates as, as Mark said, I think that it's very difficult sometimes to create teams that are very very high performing because a lot of that comes from the team being together for a long period of time And so you have to find ways that you know improve the communication and that trust that people have in teams and the effectiveness that they have working together as individuals to really kind of focus on creating that in a shorter period of time and i think that's very difficult to do and obviously when you have a high attrition rate or people move around a lot then that obviously really impacts the performance of a team but similarly you know it's very hard to find teams that are together for a long long period of time and in this day and age you know lots of people you know leave companies and kind of you know move around a lot more than maybe they did in the past so that's a a big challenge for leaders to to be able to set teams up that work together in a way that's effective um, in a short period of time
0: amazing thank you very much and here would you like to add certainly yeah
4: no absolutely i think it's a really important question and the reason being is i think david you're right where we take it for granted that it's the great leaders that create, create great teams and I, I, I you know that's one of the philosophies that you see in all the sort of books that you read but ultimately I mean if you think of since certainly you mentioned I think mark the agile manifesto the whole idea of idea of where agile came in and cross-functional development teams and so forth is is that in a cross-functional development team obviously you don't really have titles you don't really have specific roles you, you know hopefully you try to balance the team now when it comes down to it, is is that how do you create a team that is high performance? Is it personality? Is it, I mean, I've seen uh, for instance, TikTok in terms of recruitment, they've used color personality tests between the different colors and they want to make sure that the teams fit those colors. They have extroverts and introverts. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to forgive me because unlike a lot of you where you work in one company, I tend to work in a ton of them at the same time. So I have a, a view to how different companies than the tech giants do it as well. <laughs> insights. So that that team, as you say, are building that cadence and building that velocity where it's a, a predictable velocity is what we would all love to have. So you don't want superstars in companies because they are the outliers that tend to make it difficult for that kind of team to work together. But those personalities and those emotions are absolutely tantamount to having a great team. So what I found is that if you can get a team that has that ability to support itself and you can build the right uh, culture and values and values are very deep rooted uh, in people and get them to actually form that team, then the leader's job actually, and I come back to what uh, Um, Richard has said, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, everybody else knows, you know, it's not the leader that should be standing out to say, look how cool or good I am. It should be the team who had a retrospective or uh, whatever it may be at some kind of um, uh, event that's chosen to act as a radar to the rest of the business where it stands out and says, look how cool we are. Look at what we achieved. That was amazing you know, together. So it's an upward spiral in psychology rather than a down downward spiral. So I think it's really, really important. And, and I think, David, it's a great, great question because we all forget it's the team, not the leaders.
0: Brilliant. And David, would you like to add anything?
1: I think it's just been uh, covered very well so far. I think I really like point Mark's point that a team's immutable. And it's the personalities within that team and dynamics and every time you replace one of those pieces it needs to go through that whole restockment forming phase again it's quite easy to think of it as linear but like most things it's a cyclical process when you add new people to it Um, from experience um, the most important ceremony for me as a team is the retrospective if a team did one thing they would figure the other things out by doing that Um, and that's their continuous improvement Um, so i think you can put the, um, you can put the conditions in place as a, as a leader, like a gardener, um, but I think it's up to the team really to um, make that difference through continuous improvement and iteration.
0: Definitely brilliant. Okay. Is anyone else has got anything to add on that question? If not, we'll move on to the next. No? Brilliant. So Mark, I'm going to pass this on to you. Can you please um, ask your question, please?
2: For the- Question is, how do you maintain a high performing team when you have a major deadline looming and you need at least 100% of your team's capacity to achieve that deadline? So in a perfect world, everything would be perfectly planned and we'd never have these deadlines that you needed 100 or more percent. But (laughs) uh, every, maybe it's just me, but every team I've ever been in, we've always had something crop up that's in theory impossible or just about possible. But we can't, you can't afford to do the normal improvement tasks, the normal things that you would do to maintain a, a high performing team What we a lot of people would consider. So. What's people's experiences and how they dealt with these these deadlines
3: and, and the impacts on the team?
0: That's great. That's a great question. OK, Richard, do you want to take the lead on this, please?
3: Sure, no problem. Yeah. So, so my view is it's, it's, it's an interesting question. So, so thanks, Mark. I think, um, you know, with with, with teams that are obviously like kind of very deadline focused and you have to have a lot of pressure behind it I think that actually is what shows um, the good characteristics of a high performing team is that even under those high pressure scenarios they will still perform like you know very well under those and you know a lot of people and individuals will really kind of shine in, in, in that and, and how they work together as a team I think um, you know obviously if you put too much work into a team then you know it's unrealistic to expect them to do it, of course. I think that, um, you know, there's a, there's a certain level that you have to accept and push back on um, because, you know, otherwise you just overwork a team um, and, you know, you end up getting a negative impact and actually they end up delivering less than you would do if, if you kind of took a little bit outright because people get they get panicked, they realise they've got like huge amounts of work that they need to do. But equally, I do think that, you know, if you have those communications and those processes in place, I think that's a good marker of kind of like how well. Those processes and how well the team works together, whether they can still work, you know, under those high-pressure um, situations and still come out on top. And I think also it's, it's it's a big thing when when those things happen and people are successful, to really kind of um, you know recognize people's um, commitments and and contributions in those situations, so that you know people feel valued and when they've done such a really good job in in kind of delivering that work. Um, I think that's a really important part that a lot of people don't do enough of is, is recognition within teams, especially when there's like a difficult situation, they've met a deadline or, or anything like that. Then, you know, that keeps that morale high and it also like kind of really improves the motivation. So when that happens again another subsequent time, then, you know, people are kind of experienced and, you know, willing to put the, the time and, and the effort in because, you know, they obviously get recognised and they find it a challenge as well.
0: Amazing. Yeah, communication is key. <laughs> and Tahir, do you want to go next?
4: Sure. I guess uh, I'm. I I'm off mute. Okay. Uh, well, no. I mean, uh, funnily enough, I mean, I I go based on actual real real life practice, which is I've seen this happen far too often. And you you get that you get these hard deadlines that uh, the execs of the company will put in place and say we must get these features or we must get this done. And or it could be just put uh, certain bugs priority one, priority two bugs. So when this happens, and, and this is where I, I think where Richard comes in, there are. Again, it comes down to the, I always say the people, the psychology or what makes up a person and that team. Um, you know, there are some people and teams that are made up that can deal with high stress, high throughput uh, and everything else. And in a lot of organizations I've worked in, they, they tend to actually have it that uh, I call it a, a Avengers Assemble. So what ends up happening is is rather than having it where you have just one team that's dedicated to do all the high uh, intensity work and you burn them out or something, you tend to have uh, multiple teams where you pick individuals from that to sort of say, when there's something like this happens, uh, here is the first core of people that can come together, vendors Assemble, and they'll use whether it's Scrum, Kanban, Scrum Band, whatever they choose to be able to get over the line. But then at the same time, there's a second tier of people that can replace those because you know, the part is you can't predict it. You know, we use that philosophy of, um, uh, quote of, you know, being run over by a bus or somebody not being well or whatever it may be. So you cannot guarantee that those personalities and people are going to be there throughout that, whether it's a very short sprint, maybe the risk is much lower. If it's a longer uh, a number of sprints to get to that deadline, then you've got to cater for all of those. And what I found from my own experiences that when you've worked with large numbers of teams, and I don't mean where you have a company where you've worked with one or two teams and you sort of know the personalities very well, but you go into organisations where there are tens or if not hundreds of teams, and when you've got those, there's a different philosophy and a different way of dealing with things completely compared to when you just have half a dozen teams. So for me, the big thing is, is that it all comes down to that the company recognises that these events will happen. You know, these are again, you know, these are not uh, are out of the norm. And I think any company in technology that believes you can just build an organization where, forgive my uh, uh, terminology, shit hits the fun doesn't happen, but it happens all the time. And we've just got to know. So I, I, uh, I've, i you know, the advice I've given to the, the leaders I've supported and consulted, never mind the teams, is one of, what would happen when this happens? Can you can you play that through? What can you do, a dry run? Can you work it out, what it should be? How would you get the best out of this? And if you prepare for it, then it doesn't become something that's exceptional out of the, the norm. Everybody knows how to deal with it. And if you can deal with it, the temperature of the room changes, everybody knows yeah. that's it. Oh, yeah, we know that's gonna happen, how to deal with it. But there are organizations, like especially startups that I work with, where this happens, and they're lost. They're absolutely headless chickens, and they haven't a clue how to deal with it. So I'm going to come down to sort of say, you know, you've just got to be cognizant of the fact that this is normal practice, and then put in the systems, processes, people, and everything else to deal with it, and then it doesn't become something exceptional.
0: Brilliant. Great. Thank you very much. And David, last but not least.
1: I, I really like Richard's point around celebrating the wins. I think, in terms of mo- building momentum and maintaining um, just motivation, I think it's so overlooked, but it makes such a difference just to people t- to feel as like the seen and heard. Um, I also think it's almost like a, a team's rite of passage. So you've got these individuals. I think one catalyst to get them to come together is like being forged in fire almost. So, uh, uh, stable robust high performing team that they should be able to overcome a bit of adversity uh, i'm not saying go out your way to give teams ridiculous deadlines and create on you know unpleasant scenarios for them but when you think of even like um xp values you know part of that is like respect and courage so as a leader you might not like it but they they should be able to work at a sustainable pace and they should be able to push back um Because working under those stressful conditions, you know, even the term sprint, it implies doing something fast for a short period of time. And that's like fight and flight. Right. So teams will just get exhausted and burnt out. And that's how it happens. So I think a high performing team will push back where needed and ensure it's sustainable in the long term, which should um, be a better outcome for the project or initiative or whatever it might be.
0: Amazing. Thank you very much. Mark, would you like to add anything?
1: Oh well, a little,
2: I guess, like everyone was saying, um, it, it happens, in my view, there's a debt that you you take out from the team because they're having to, they're sacrificing things, they're working long hours, they're giving up on some of the things that they would normally do within the team process, but you have to pay that debt back uh, after you hopefully hit the deadline and, and make sure you put a time aside. So the retrospective, like Richard was saying, is absolutely key. that's and when you have that retrospective you should be driven by look we just had weeks or months driving for this deadline we must prepare for this better and like Tahir was saying I've never thought of it in that way these things we all know they happen sometimes they happen more regularly than you want to so even though you don't want them to be to happen start preparing for them to happen so you know what will what you'll do when when it does happen because it's going to happen again it would be a miracle if it doesn't if you don't have mm-hmm. another deadline you have to work really hard or it's going to be a 100% to to achieve so I, I, lo- I, like the, I
3: like those points.
0: Brilliant thank you very much so Richard on to you.
3: Yeah so so my topic was um, basically around motivation of individuals so obviously high performing teams um, require both excellent processes and teamwork to be present so my question is what motivates specifically individuals um, and how does this help the individuals to come together to, to create a high-performing team?
0: Brilliant question. So Tahir, I'll start with you on this one, please. No,
4: wonderful. I, again, it's uh, as I said, it all comes down to this psychology aspect of uh, people, doesn't it, for me anyway. Uh, that's what I've seen from my 30 years in, in tenure is is that um, what motivates people is having the people where they have psychological safety, they have this ability to learn, they have the ability to celebrate, they have all the things that you will find that are, you create know, great, great friendships, and that support uh, infrastructure that you need, because everybody wants to be able to fail fast. We use, we hear about all of that. We want that security of being able to ask those questions that are hard, and being able to, as David said, push back all these lovely things at the end of the day. so you know, if you take out the technical aspect of it and, you know, again, we can go into, you know, I think there's like, I've seen 15 documented characteristics of what makes high-performing teams. And I sort of go, okay, that's fine. You know, I can read about all of those. But what I'm, what what I found from my own practice, and it's probably how I uh, sort of explain to people is I, d- I take it from what I've experienced. So I've been at the start where I've been a single developer. I've been at the start before Agile Manifesto, was even thought about where we had waterfall designs and how teams work and then the agile manifesto came about and so forth so how do you how how were uh, how were people motivated uh, and you know i go back to and it sounds really weird but my first days at microsoft i joined at, based in reading and the company paid for an open bar from 6 till 9 pm every week uh, amazing you know so we had waterfall in those days we didn't have agile but we went and we all got together and we had a drink later on, and other companies, the tech giants have worked without in Silicon Valley, whatever it may be. How do they do it? What's interesting is, is that they've created it that you can you walk into the like, let's say you walk into Google, it's free lunch, it's free breakfast, it's free dinner, it's free everything on site, you don't have to even go home, you can have everything you want in one place. Um, How does Facebook do it? Um, Facebook do it where when they're recruiting to create those teams, uh, they'll get thousands of people to join and the teams get to pick the people that they like and they interview them and talk to them and to play with them, whatever it may be, but creating that team culture and I, I come down to it, it's purely down to values and culture to me.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and over to David, please.
1: So if we give one thing to people in my teams, it would be that they go home at the end of the day feeling like they've achieved something and done something. Mm -hmm. And it sounds quite simple, but it's difficult to do. And I think it's that sense of um, satisfaction and fulfillment. Um, I also think when you think of mobile developers, for example, you look at a lot of the apps on the App Store, they can be created by individuals, but app developers still choose to join bigger teams and be part of something bigger. Um so I think there is that that human need, wanting to make an impact, wanting to look back and say, I did that. I was part of that. Um so I think as has touched about, it's just that um basic psychological um need that, that people have to make just to leave an impact on the world.
0: Amazing. Brilliant. Um okay so Mark, what would what do you think?
2: Definitely like to hear, and David said, it's the culture, the team knowing each other, being confident to fail, know that your team and your leader is going to support you. Um, uh, so you're you're brave enough to if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. Um, so you, nothing will change, and you'll just go backwards because other teams, other companies will change, and and you'll fall behind. Um, for me, I'm a Big fan. I know tons of people following, but Simon Senek and the start with the why. So you understand what the goal is. Um, often, a company or a, a team or a company don't even know what their own goal is, or they've got a very weak goal like we're going to be the best or something like that, which doesn't. Everyone, why would you not want to be the best? Um, so it's actually got to mean a bit more. A lot of times when I'm interviewing people, especially younger developers, people in their, yeah, young now, that makes me feel old. People in their twenties and thirties. That they are actually interested in what the culture of the company is and what socially they're doing. They want to be part of something. And that's what motivates them and really keeps them. Because like hear say all these things like a nice office and bonding as a team is great. But you're not going to keep people just by having a pool table and a beanbag. You need more than that. It's part that makes it helps, but it's part of it. Um, knowing what difference you make, I, I worked in a software house and we had maybe hundred plus customers. And as a development team, we were really down about what we were doing because we thought we had rubbish software because there's loads of bugs and we were the development team and we didn't get to see the customers much. And we were, I think I was saying this to somebody once and they're saying, no, no, we've got brilliant software. And so they introduced us to some of the customers and we're like, I've never heard of you. Uh, when I spoke to the customer, customer A, they're like, yeah, because we don't raise any bugs because your software's brilliant, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And we we only, like a doctor, you only ever see people generally when they're ill. We were only hearing from customers when there were defects and we didn't hear all the positive stuff that was happening. And it's like, your software's worked perfectly for last year, it's brilliant, we love you. And that's what you, you need to help the teams. So they need to hear when it goes wrong so they know the impact and that drives them to improve but they also need to hear this made a massive difference. Our systems or whatever the users are, it's still working brilliantly and it's it's worthwhile, all the hard effort you're putting in um, to what you're doing. We got this feature earlier than we expected. It's made this massive benefit. And that I think like all the other guys are saying, it, it motivates people to, um, to to do better and to keep improving because it's tiring all the retrospectives are agile and improving it's much easier just to do the same thing over and over again but when you get motivated uh, and you understand why you're doing something then that really gets the team culture going
0: amazing i think as well recently there's been quite a lot of posts on linkedin about what you've been saying about free lunches and free gym passes that's not actually what people want what people want is to be included within the teams to feel to feel wanted um and to feel of of some value to the team. So yeah, you have all definitely touch base on that. The culture is massive. I
2: think it's I was thinking like we we're all talking about software here, but it can easily I'm a sort of sports fan, you can easily go into a sports team and you see all these especially like footballers are highly paid footballers, but once they're on the pitch, I'm sure they don't think anything about how much they're being they're earning. They're mm-hmm. thinking about the team and that's what okay off the pitch they want to know how much they're earning and the mansions they're living in but once on the pitch they're just people playing football and they have to have the motivation and sometimes you see for whatever reason the club or the culture the manager isn't working well and they're not motivated and they perform badly and then suddenly they get a new manager and suddenly a team starts winning and it it's it's a lot of it. it's in the head and how the, the whole culture and it's it's very hard to to make that which is why the like a a, a club or a company is so important about and it takes a long time to build that and a lot of
3: effort to maintain it.
0: Really, Brilliant. Thank you everyone for your answers. They were really good. Has anyone got anything to add to that one?
3: Uh, yeah, sure. I just wanted to jump in to kind of just yeah. respond to a few of the the, the answers there. So, I, you know, I, I really agree with David's point around, you know, people kind of want to feel like they've built something and be a part of something. And I think that's, that's really important. I think there's a there's a book that I kind of read a while ago and kind of what I base a lot of the things that I do at work on which is a kind of book called Drive by by Daniel Pinkman. And it kind of talks about, you know, the three big aspects of motivation, which is kind of autonomy, mastery and purpose and how each of those three things kind of really provide um, you know, intrinsic motivation, which I think, you know, Mark just touched on. But like, you know, footballers don't think about how much money they've got when they're on the pitch. Right. They kind of want to master their profession and, and kind of really in the zone when when they're playing the game. They don't think about, oh, well, I'm going to go home and get like, you know, a million dollars or, or whatever. Right. A paycheck at the end of it. That, like external motivation is less effective and you know in, in the book Daniel kind of goes on to talk about that you know external kind of things like the pool tables and, and lunches etc right it doesn't really motivate you as much because you know if it's a big reward then all you do is focus on that big reward rather than you know doing the work well and, and mastering your craft and having that purpose there and So that internal motivation that people have inside teams Working together as a team is one, but also having that central purpose, which I think, you know, a lot of people don't really give to their teams and having that vision and the culture and lots of other things to say this is what we're working towards. You know, high-performing teams really kind of need to win together and and fail together, yeah? There's no, like, kind of in-between for the high-performing teams. And that goes on to, you know, again, people in premiership teams or basketball or whatever, at a very high level, they kind of all work together solidly as a team because they're all so close to each other and they're each individually motivated, like internally themselves rather than with whatever reward they get. Like you know, sure that might help them get there in the first place and attract them to it, but ultimately it's mastering their craft and being the best they they can be in the world at something. Right, as as a team player, you know even like players like you know Shaq O'Neal and basketball, whatever. Without good people to help them as well, like leaders. They, they don't really turn into, you know, having a great team. Nice. You know, one individual can't kind of, you know, I th- I th- there's lots of, you know, stories about him, but, you know, there was a certain period of time where they just go, okay, well, we'll just mark him and no- nobody can kind of, you can't do anything then, right? Because everybody just kind of stopped him from playing the game because he was the best. So, you know, t- without him, the team failed, yeah? Whereas, you know, a lot of the things that they learned afterwards, I think, you know, um, to hear touched on it before, you don't want these superstar developers a lot of the time because they just kind of take all the limelight and really it's not those kind of individuals that you can't work well as a team help deliver software and help create these high performing teams right it's how you can work together as a team there might be a star player but it's how that person also works with other people in the team to create like a really high performing team and as i said they always win together and and fail together at the end
0: 100 percent brilliant this has been a good good question anyone else Uh, got anything to add to this
3: can I was going I... to say,
4: or go, you Woo! go to here. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, so, no, you know, what's interesting is, is uh, I look at my life in terms of why I like coding. And to this day, no matter how long, I still code. Uh, I mean, earlier today, I was practicing more Rust programming just because, you know, it's something I'm doing this week. And what I always enjoyed about software development is, and, uh, you know, it's like David said, um um the, the, this idea of achieving something what i love is i i i i, I described it once on another uh, i think it was a podcast or something or some seminar once i said for me as a man every time i write a piece of software and i do it with the team that i work with it's like feeling like a woman might feel when she delivers a baby it's the one of one of the most powerful things <laughs> that i i can experience that's as close as i wouldn't know how to deliver a baby but certainly it's that camaraderie. It's that coming together. It's that delivering something where you can be proud of. And when 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 it goes out into the wild and whether it's an app or whether it's a website or whatever it may be, or whether it's a single feature and, you know, you get people talking about it and saying, wow, well, that's a cool feature. And that your feedback, as Mark said, that you get from the customer, it's not always about the negative. You need to hear the positive as well, because that's what drives you. So to me, being part of uh, an organization. And so for instance, um, to give an example, when I'm asked, would you like to work for a full-time role at a company? My answer to most of them is no, I'm not interested because I don't see anything that drives me to that level to go, I want to work for this company because it's going to deliver the absolute you know, dogs or whatever And, you know, and and it inspires me, whatever, because I've been in so many great companies. uh, The level is much, much higher now, and I want to find those companies. So I come back to this, which is, It is about, I think, when you can get the teams together, the culture together, that's why, you know, uh, recruitment companies and HR spend so much time trying to find the right people. Because it's only when you've got the collective and that collective knows it can deliver, it can stand up and it can celebrate and it can and, and the world can go, oh, my God, look at that. Wasn't that amazing that everybody goes, I want to be that. I want to do that.
2: You're on mute, Ruth, but I think I <laughs> know what you're saying.
0: <laughs> and I was the one who gave the house rules at the beginning, hey. <laughs> um, so Mark, would you like to speak, Sadie?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like like you're saying, like everyone's saying, it, it is the the people in the team and the motivation is massively important. Um, we've used in the past, um, uh, we use a thing called office vibe, think, vibe, and I'm sure there's lots of similar programs that they poll the team and get this, they ask them different, it's all anonymous, ask them different uh, questions about how they feel about their team uh, mates, how they feel about their managers and their work, and are they happy or sad, and how they feel their career's progressing, and you can get it, as long as there's enough people to make sure it's anonymous, so you can't tell who it is, so we get you get honest answers, you get to see the sentiment of your team, and that's been brilliant for us in the past, because sometimes you you're not as connected with the team as a leader as you should be and you think everything's brilliant and then suddenly you see an area i don't know for example like uh, like a, the tester role are really disparaged and they're not happy and you, you then you can actually address it and say guys what's up what what are we doing wrong um before it's too late and they're uh, underperforming or or leaving and you you, leave, leave, you lose those really good people so it, it's like like agile, it's a constant. You have to constantly work at it to make sure you, your people are
0: engaged. Great, yeah, brilliant. So this has been a juicy, juicy question, hasn't it? Has anyone else got anything to add, Richard? Would you like to add anything to onto your question, or should we move on?
3: Uh, no, I think it's really interesting. So uh, there's been some some good discussion. So yeah, we can move on. Thanks, Ruth.
0: Brilliant. Okay, to hear. Over to yourself. Could you uh, say your question?
4: Sure, certainly. So my question was, how do you cross-train other teams to be able to create a level playing field, as well as manage dependencies across teams to enable a steady flow? And I'll put a bit more context to it. So the context is that the the best companies I work with right now are so customer-centric that the the the, uh, the fact done is that it's customer-centric, as in the total solution. Done isn't because you've got a user story or you've got a test artifact that is marked as done and how you create it so that whole chain can go from start to end and say done is great because the customer is happy, not just because some team did the individual delivery well and then you get you know ups and downs within teams. And I'm really interested because you all come from credible organisations. How do you do this? Um, I've not worked at any of you guys. I've worked at other banks, never worked at Barclays, but I'd love to know how you do this.
0: Brilliant. OK, so we'll start with David on this one, please.
4: That's a great question to hear.
1: Um, <laughs> um, when you were talking there, I started thinking about um, like circles of influence. So when you start off as just a, I don't know, a junior developer, you're just thinking about yourself and then you get more mature thinking about the teams. I think to be a high performing team, it's not enough for your thinking to stop at the end of your team boundary or domain or whatever that may, might be. Um, so sure, there should be organisational um, force and functions to align teams, but I think a high performing team should, should be willing to overlap where necessary with the teams. Um, obviously, as managers, we can put things in place to stop think, teams thinking in silos, um so yeah like show and tells sharing best practice again it's celebrating wins but a a team at a team level um and obviously i'm sure you're aware like amazon away teams you know when you're thinking about again it's it's teams coming in contact with each other if you've got a good culture within a team you've got to be there you've got to experience it you've got to see what good looks like and i think that's part of what spreads that um that, that best practice is teams seeing what good looks like. I think another part of your question as well, when you're talking about uh, teams creating a level playing field, that called out to me on in society and diverse teams as well. So for example, um, being able to um, train new people on board, being able to, for example, we've taken on uh, tech returners different people in the journey. So. Again, teams having a principle that they create a level playing field, and it sounds quite lofty, but for like other people in society and knowing in tech, when you look at all the the costs going up and how people are struggling, when you look at the salaries of developers at the moment, let's be honest, we're in a privileged place. So I think part of leveling the playing field is opening the doors to people and giving them that opportunity and helping other people in society as well.
0: Great, brilliant, thank you very much. And we'll go to Mark next, next please.
2: Um, I can't remember, there's some, I think it might be Spotify, but I've used chapters and guilds um, between developers, different different application or application areas. So meet where I am at the moment, we, we have testing and developer chapters where we meet on a monthly basis and share uh, all the things we've learned or share good practice. Um, talk about uh, standards and processes, and how we, uh, how we as a, a, a role that may be working in different teams to make sure we're working similarly. The, the thing we don't want is a role moving from one team to another. like David was saying, and then suddenly it works completely differently, and you're having to onboard them to a different team. Uh, teams should be able to try out new ways of working, um, tell other teams what they're doing, saying, oh, "Look, we're trying this out, seeing how it works, experimenting, then feeding back and saying." yeah, it didn't work, or we think everyone should adopt this, or if you're doing it in this way, try try this new technique. Um, so I encourage that. A big fan of wiki, maybe in a jaconian way, um, I'm obsessed with people documenting what they've learnt, um, because I just think it's selfish not sharing what you know. And so we actually have it in our objectives for people saying, and at the end of like an objective period, I'll be saying to people, right, what have you what well, if you documented? Because if you've not documented anything, then in theory you don't know anything. Um, you've not learned anything, and you've got nothing to share with other people. Which I'm sure is not. You, you can't be. You can't be highly performing as an individual if you're not learning anything, or you or everything you know is already documented, or or, or we're living in an amazing place. And in that case, I'll just lift them over my shoulders and, and run around celebrating. But it's never happened so far. Um, there's always been things to document. Um, and then on dependencies. Um, probably a nightmare for everybody so shouldn't a team shouldn't start or should have that role don't start your sprint unless you've got everything you need within the team to complete the sprint Um, dependencies from other teams massive risk so encourage the other teams to address those first get your most experienced team members on them swarm them if you can so you can get them done but Make sure the other team, the team who is dependent on a feature from another area or a functionality from another area, um, has a backup plan because, like we've talked before, things will go wrong. The dependency won't be completed on time in some instances. So make sure you're not stuck uh, without any other work to do. So have some other thing, a, a backup plan um, to, to fall back on.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. And Richard, please um, go forward with your answer.
3: Yeah. Um, so I think with the kind of whole cross-functional piece, I think it's really important to kind of, there's there's two points, right? One is that I think similar to what Mark said around the Spotify model, I think the, there's two aspects of that are really important. One is that the team owns the process end to end, because I think it really kind of motivates people and gives people like, you know, the responsibility and autonomy um, to be able to kind of you know do that thing fully end to end and I think that really creates a lot of skills that people learn within that team as well because they have to kind of help each other out a lot more than kind of get an external resource in necessarily right um, and having that ownership means that people have to chip in a little bit here and there to kind of help make it happen and you know you obviously get a more effective team by doing that right but also I just think that that kind of ownership of the end-to-end process really helps um, with, with creating a, a kind of high-performing team, right? Um, I think the second point is around the skill sharing, um, that I think is also really imp- important. So, you know, the way Barclays, the way we do it, is that we align a lot of the teams to, to, to here's point to a customer journey, right? So a lot of the teams might sit in a particular kind of place, uh, traditionally, before we kind of moved over to the way we work now, where it was a team that worked on a specific domain or a specific product, but then, you know, you have to go and talk to another team or like 10 other teams to get the whole journey done end to end, right? Because there's lots of different kind of systems in, in, a, in a complex bank like Barclays. And so there's lots of individual teams that own them and then you have to go and align work, etc. So it's obviously very difficult to actually get something done because you're constantly having to go to different teams. They have very different knowledge around things and different timelines. So, you know, it, it kind of creates delays. So now, you know, a lot of our teams are kind of, at least in my area, are kind of aligned more to a product journey. So we look at kind of bringing all the resource in to our teams that is, you know, can work on an end-to-end flow across all of the systems. So there's there's less lag and less kind of um, handover between different teams. It also means that, you know, a lot of our teams, therefore, we can do a lot of knowledge sharing, so like Mark said, people are very aware of the Spotify model where you might get like front end development or whatever across 10 or 15 teams across a few different products. They all share ideas for how they implement things. They all have a kind of uh, knowledge then of the product and products that are happening, as well as the development practices that they're using within those teams. And so, you know, if people or individuals leave or you kind of maybe have an issue with uh, attrition or, or kind of, you know, some, someone might need some like extra resources we talked before where there's that 100% thing where, you know, a lot of work might need to be jumped on. At least other teams are aware of those kind of issues and can come and help you from a cross-functional perspective because they're not like siloed. And I think that's the biggest risk when you work with lots of teams in a big organization is when teams are too siloed. And then, like, you have this problem with communication between them. People don't understand the different systems. And so, you know, that has a number of like negative impacts if you do that, right? Because, you know, like I said, people people don't really know (laughs) the the best thing to do and they jump in and, well, we've got no one to to fix this problem when someone leaves. And I I think the point, just, just lastly, the point that David made around getting like junior developers into teams and kind of creating a cultural aspect of the the diverse cross-functionality, right, rather than just from a technical or, or a kind of you know what that person can do perspective. I think the diverse teams are really important. And I think creating a talent pipeline and getting people from, you know, we we work a lot with North Coders and we have our own kind of destination technology um scheme inside Barclays where we take people from different parts of the bank and introduce them to technology so that they can do like a career change within the bank. I think that's really valuable and I think it kind of obviously tech is a very kind of, you know, hot topic at the moment. Lots of people want to do coding. And I think it's really important to take on and build those those you know pipelines of talent and create that diversity and cross functionality within the teams. Because I think it's very important so that you have that cross section and, and the ideas that people come up with. It's like quite surprising even junior developers or people from North Coders, you know, that we've had in the past have been very valuable in the team. And they, they kind of come up with ideas that maybe more senior people wouldn't, you know, uh, really come up with it, or you wouldn't have thought that they would come up with those kind of ideas. So it just shows you the kind of, you know, need to have that diverse group of people um, from different backgrounds. And, you know, those different backgrounds can offer a lot of value, especially when they do like tech returners or people that have been teachers or scientists or anything do North Coders. You know that experience they've had in a past life can be really valuable to teams as well.
0: Great, thank you very much. Um, so here, would you like to add anything to your question?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, one of the reasons I asked it is again one of the things that I'm finding uh, I'm being asked more and more questions about is is that we, you know, we have. They are pre-pandemic. We have the idea that people got together. Then we have it that we've got nearshore and offshore. Then we've got uh, pandemic. Where we've got remote working and hybrid working. Now we've got a gig economy and everything else. And you've got such a mixture uh, uh, of you know of people, which are and you know companies are now going to the point where they're saying when we're hiring, you can be anywhere on the planet. We don't really care because we have all the abilities and whatever. So all of the the dimensions of how we work is changing so much. And these teams that were so used to all coming into the office one day and working and maybe that, you know, we managed to get it to the point you could all have a Friday off and work from home. That's changed completely. Almost all of my work is now remote. I mean, it's rarely I get invited to anyone's site. And if I do, it's more of a hello, come out, say, you know, meet the team and then I'm off again. And I'm finding that the dynamics are changing so much that, I'm, I'm trying to wonder, and I've not seen it in practice, uh, how has anybody truly implemented that end-to-end journey? As Richard had said, this, you know, I viewed as customer-centric. Done is when the customer says it's done, not because some artifact in the middle says it's done. And how are we doing it with all of these? So again, you're all substantial organizations, bigger and smaller. So I'd like to sort of almost add the third question. H- how do you see that playing out in your organizations? Because I'd love to get some guidance, to be fair
0: who wants to start on that
3: sure i'll go um, mind, yeah. so so yeah I, I mean <laughs> so from a from a, a kind of you know remote working perspective and like how people have come together you know our, our policy now yeah, at least in, in buk tech is to kind of stick with the hybrid model so we we have people that you know um typically come into the office like once or twice a week so we say like 40% um you know as a, as a kind of rule but people can kind of be back and forth a little bit between that but i don't think you know as you said people will go back to the old way of you know definitely not 5 days a week i, I know i've heard from from some companies have they've said like you know oh suddenly like next week we have to go back into the office 4 days a week right 5 days a week I think that's a little bit harsh and, and, and a lot of people leave the jobs because of that right and go to towards jobs that have kind of fully remote etc right uh, or, or kind of maybe in the office you have the they have the flip side of that where people kind of want to you know come into the office because they miss that human contact and they don't want a fully remote role so i think w- with barclays they try and kind of cater for both really and kind of say look you know 40 rule um you know compulsory one day a week and kind of really try and get people in and collaborate and, and kind of you know obviously there's a lot of advantages to kind of having people in person that's not to say that you can't do everything fully remote you can do but i think there's there's a compromise for such a big company where if you say like everyone's fully remote then people miss that and vice versa right so that's just the way that barclays has, has formed the policy to help kind of drive that collaboration still but well you know obviously still taken into the consideration that you know lots of people want to work you know quite remotely at the moment
0: Brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Mark, do you want to add anything to that at all? Oh, can't hear you.
2: Oh, sorry, I was gonna say, David, uh, David, do you want to speak or? I, I... Yeah, sure. Um, yeah,
1: go through.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so similar to Richard, really, NAO we standardised on two days a month at the moment. Um, I think the key things we found are a lot of your culture can be um, implicit. But I think the difficulty comes um, when you don't provide clarity and this is something you've got to be explicit on or otherwise you end up in that messy middle. Um, You know, I know autonomy is a key part of like that damping, but it can be paralyzing for people as well. And sometimes people just don't want the cognitive load. Sometimes they don't want to come to the work, but equally they just want you to tell them what to do. Just make it easy for me. Just solve this problem for me. So sometimes just, making it really clear, making it really simple, saying this X number of days a month or whatever it might be. Um, on that point, coming back in the office, for example, uh, we had no intention of coming back in the office, but there was always that paranoia that came up. Um, so we explicitly put in the contracts, even though we weren't going to change it, but that you could see the, the tension go from people's shoulders, that sigh of relief, but just that clarity is what is what people were looking for.
0: Brilliant.
2: I think the whole like the hybrid working for me um, on a personal level is a bit like your dress code. So um, I'm meeting a customer next week um, in probably in our office. So I will go in in smart business attire. I probably won't wear a tie, but very rarely wear those nowadays. But I'll I'll wear smart business attire. But if the customer wasn't in, I would wear casual clothing. And I think dress for your diary and locate for your diary. So don't don't just go in to sit at your desk and do what you would have done at home. If you're going to go in, do it for a reason. Do it because there's a review, there's a retro, there's a team update, or you're going to go out for a social afterwards or at lunchtime and make it worthwhile. We, during um, pre-pandemic, we were five-day-a-week uh, office company. Um, but during the pandemic, with the Probably like 2021 with the uh the strong competition around resources we went remote uh both in the uk and abroad um and we felt we actually already had a person who was working remotely pre-pandemic um, and we would have stand-ups and we'd have all those uh, such a long time since I've used them now that um those boxes you speak into the jabber boxes that's it um <laughs> and the person who was remote always struggled be involved because there were 5, 10 people stood in person and they couldn't be so interactive. But since everyone's been remote, the remote people, it's, it's more of a level playing field for them. So I'm now much more conscious that when we are in the office uh, and the, the smaller percentage of people are in the office, the people are remote, we've got to really make sure that they're part um, because they can't come into the office. They're hundreds of miles away. Some of them are thousands of miles away, um, but they're really good talent that make a massive difference so are uh, uh, it has to be like locate for your diary and only if it's really worthwhile and don't exclude the people who are remote and can't come in
0: definitely it's a fine line isn't it about keeping people engaged when working from home um and protecting people's mental health in a way as well and making sure that they are still feeling like they're part of a team um so yeah really great points i see david you've got your hands up thank you for that you're on mute.
1: was <laughs> so part of Tahir's question there that I was really interested in, which I think we quite covered. Um, so Tahir, you talked about uh, managing the dependencies to enable a steady flow, um, and you've worked in a number of organisations. How many organisations have achieved that nirvana of understanding what their flow is, let alone knowing whether it's steady or not?
4: Well, again, it's quite interesting. So obviously, Uh, companies have tried to do Scrum of Scrums, those that are using Agile methodologies, to sort of understand if that, you you know, and and all the lovely velocity graphs and all the lovely figures that come out of those. So they've tried to use technical solutions as a way of working out whether everybody is forming and working in in that steady flow. But then ultimately, those metrics and KPIs that you have and those telemetry tools to help you understand. I mean, I've seen companies who've gone literally to the point that they've got some amazing tools which are literally analysing GitHub repos and Bitbucket repos and are are able to see how teams are doing purely from the the technical dashboard, you know, a visualisation and you can see how people are doing what they are. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, like I said, those metrics and that telemetry is great. It's almost like the teams are those systems components now you know we we're used to writing component modular software some teams have now become that and the software the visualization that's that their dashboard tells you what you need to know but ultimately like you say, when you got to the the crux of it, it's this thing of, I almost describe it as, and I think David, you mentioned earlier, like uh, XP with extreme programming and those engineering practices. So you've got teams who have adopted XP and a greater quality. You've got teams who've done Scrum who like to want to get this cadence right. You've got those teams that have their backlog changing all the bloody time and they have to use Kanban because they understand that philosophy works better. And then it becomes even harder because then there is no way to monitor the flow. So you come to the conclusion that, and that was why I put the question, which is, the whole organisation, and this is where you know, you, you know, you read the books and the stories, and I, certainly with Amazon, I've been part of it to some degree, where this idea of customer centric and done is when the customer's happy. You know, so if you if you commit to something, those SLOs, SLBs, or whatever they are, all the different, all the OKIs, and all the other l- lovely things that people talk about, you bring all of those together to be able to form some perspective that you want to give to the execs of whether the the machine is working. So that's all I can tell you.
0: <laughs> Great, brilliant. So I mean, everyone's asked their question. Does anybody want to ask any sub questions or? go into anything in any more detail? I'm going I was going
2: to say my only one was like maybe carrying on from what Tahir was saying that there's lots of stats and metrics you can record. Are there and there's lots of the classic ones like sort of lead time, mean time between deployments, staff retention rate, all these sorts of things. Are there are there metrics that you've you've inherited or you put in, and in retrospect actually thought this tells me something, but it's not useful, or it's actually created a negative behaviour in the team because they've they've worked towards that metric, and you've had un you've had consequences you didn't expect as a result of it.
4: Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Where I've been Marcus, if I may. Uh, you're absolutely right that it can actually be very detrimental. Mm you know, that, you know, you've got big brother and I'm just a number, uh, you know, yeah. am, I, am I doing enough commits? Am I, is the quality high enough? Are the numbers great enough or whatever it may be? So it's a very, very fine balance. So that's all I could say to you. So, you know, again, uh, the view out there is, is that the reason why I'm glad that, you know, you brought it up, actually, I think it's a very important point, which is, Ultimately, you know, we've talked about teams, high performance teams and whatever, and those characteristics and those telemetry or that KPIs or whatever it may be, those stats that we use, um, they can all have a positive, but also a very big negative. And if you don't take care of the, and do the trade-offs, you're not going to have, you, you know, I hate using the words. I, I you know, I've been uh, asked by companies to come in, we've got dysfunctional teams. I'm like, how are they dysfunctional? What makes them dysfunctional? Do you even know what that means? Are they just unhappy? Do you just need to buy them free shakes? What's the problem? You know, I hate <laughs> that. So, But anyway, that, yeah, I think it's a fantastic point, Mark. It's, it's like
2: that. my favourite Dilbert um, cartoon. Is there's like someone sitting at the computer and the manager comes over and tells them off and said you haven't written enough lines of code today and it's like well, but I, I i've solved cancer and it's like but you're supposed to write 100 lines of code and you've only done 20. it's like did you hear what i said i've solved cancer it's like mm-hmm. no you've, you've got a metric you should have hit it and you're like oh, yeah. i don't know what other people have other people are things I, I love learning from other people's mistakes um other yeah. people found things that these are the classics but they've created these negative behaviors. Um,
3: yeah, uh, I'll jump in, Mark. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you you spot on, right? Uh, you can kind of overanalyze things and kind of generate too many metrics. And I think it's really important when you look at metrics is that you know does that metric create a conversation? Does it start a conversation that actually adds value to, to what you're monitoring? Right? Because I think a lot of these kind of, as uh, to here has mentioned, with you know monitoring repositories or, or whatever it might be, I think that you know you have to be a little bit careful as to what value that they deliver and what you can actually use that metric for, to make a change to, for for a positive. And, you know, if if you misuse them, then it can become actually very negative and people, as you said, might feel like, you know, demoralized or if they get that, that information, then you have to be extremely careful with, with, with how you like, you know, present them to the team um, and the value that you get out of them. And I think that some metrics are really fantastic, you know, um, like, you know, um, time, lead time, um, to live, et cetera, like that, you know, how long it takes for a particular project and whether your processes are working well, um, how quickly you can get something into production, I think is, is, is an important one and a great one to measure because, like to hear, it's all about getting that journey out as, as fast as possible to the, to the customer or the colleague. And I think that you can, like, you know, use these other metrics that aren't really that important because they kind of by the by, you know, what, what matters is that you deliver software safely. And effectively to the customer and that's where it gives you the value and that 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 comes from those value streams and that's what those teams are ultimately for i think you've got to be very careful um with other metrics that don't really give you that picture um to get and and that is the the ultimate marker really of of whether you're having a successful team right is how quickly you can ship your your value and what what makes a customer journey better to to the customer that's great brilliant does anyone
0: else want to add anything
3: I'll hold my hand up to things I've
2: missed mistakes I've made. We got like a BI tool sitting on top of the Used Jira and DevOps and we got this BI tool and thought, Oh, we can do loads of things. We created lots of graphs. And one of the graphs we managed to create was number of basically a number of defects or we called them problems. Once they hit the customer, that different individuals had resolved. And then we produced this graph going just out of interest and with a heat thing. It looked really cool. And then someone pointed out, said, this doesn't really, that drives the wrong behaviour because you're more experienced developers. You're going to put on the harder issues, so they did fewer, and then the easier ones you'd only give to the less experienced developers. And so we had to abandon it. it. Just didn't mean anything. We created it because it looked cool and thought, "Oh, that's interesting," and we didn't really think about it. We didn't. The old classic thing: we didn't ask a question. We we just gave a title to some data, and we it wasn't actually answering any questions. And when we when we thought about what the question was, there wasn't one, and it was a waste of time. And and the, and the other the other the one that I, I've sort of pushed back on is when people want to really interrogate the number of defects raised within a team or within the dev cycle. Um, and I'm quite protective over. I think raise as many as you like. I don't. And when testers find defects, I always praise them. I say, "Brilliant, well done for finding it." the ones that we don't like when the customer finds it um, and that's the real pain so as much as you want to go have some developers who are slow well relatively slow in developing but they're really high quality and others who are quicker but lower quality but you you get the cycle different things different people but um the big one for us is the defect leakage the stuff that goes out of the team to the customer and and even then it's about what your software is so if you're and if you're a music streaming platform and I don't know the title of the song or the number of beats per minute is one out okay it doesn't make that much of a difference no one's going to cry over it but the old classic if you're a rocket or if you're a banking system and you start giving people the wrong money then it's really important so you have to get it into context brilliant like, h- how much impact
1: is it
0: yeah So as I see you've got your hands up
1: yeah so in AO we're looking at our out of hours process which is always a fun topic for conversation. Um, and I'm absolutely paranoid about putting the incentives in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So uh, the last thing I want to do is, yeah, don't get me wrong, it's terrible if developers open up at four in the morning, because we do operate like a build it, ship it, supported DevOps model. Um, so I don't want them woken up at three o'clock in the morning. So I do want to pay for them for the inconvenience of being on at hours. I get that. I don't want to pay in for, per incident. I don't want to pay in per minute. What I do want to incentivize is building robust systems, right? That's really where the magic is. If someone, if a service can fail, um, if the journey can just beautifully degrade, it disappears, the feature switch goes off, it auto scales. I'll pay for that all day long. Um, so I think that's it's that old um, saying, isn't it? Tell me, how you are going to um, measure me? I'll tell you how I'm going to behave. Um, so where you put those incentives are, are really, really important.
0: Brilliant, definitely. Well, I did a poll recently and it was about um, what's more important, hours or outcome. And it just ties in. But basically what everyone's saying here is that 97 percent of the people voted outcome, only 3 percent voted ours. And it just completely ties in with every single one of your points is that it is the outcome that everyone's looking for Um, in the middle. Yeah, it needs to be looked at, but it could be detrimental instead of actually helping the team. So yeah, I just thought I'd give you some um, numbers and figures from a recent poll that I did, (laughs) Um, which completely agrees with what everyone's saying. Um, Has anyone else got anything else that they'd like to bring up or ask? No? Brilliant. Well, okay. so what I'll do, I'll finish it there. Um, so, yeah, of course, this has been the evolution podcast. I want to take the opportunity um, to thank you all. So thank you, David, Mark, Richards, and Tahir for providing all your insights on the topic. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a little chat with me um, and speaking about your backgrounds, different views and the tips and tricks for our listeners as well.